one of the founding fathers of our organization and patron saint, of course, is our well-known book dealer and godfather of the round table, Mr. Ralph Newman. Mr. Newman will this evening have a few poignant remarks to make, plus the introduction to our guest speaker this evening, Mr. Newman. First of all, I'd like to call Lawrence Smittle and Marshall Krolik up the front here, please. <laughs> to those of you who have been on a battlefield tour, that includes most of the members here and some of the ladies, you know what superb planning and what hard work it is to organize a tour that takes as many as 125 people from Chicago to some distant point, feeds them, houses them, arranged for all the details, these two that they don't have four chicken meals in a row, that your luggage isn't lost. Uh, I didn't tell you how many things are involved. And as a slight, and this is a very slight token of appreciation to the two co-chairmen, we just thought we'd give you some little remembrance of this event. Uh, Marshall, we tried hard to find, you know, a great picture of your favorite general, but we couldn't. <laughs> but on a more serious note, we managed to locate a, a, a contemporary engraving of uh, Union generals of the Department of the Mississippi. And in this engraving, the center portrait happens to be that of Benjamin H. Grierson, plus a Civil War print, and we thought you'd like to have it as Thank you. Knowing what a difficult job it is to be a chairman of a battlefield trip, we thought the probably the most welcome thing to you would be to give you a discharge. So here is a genuine Civil War discharge. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't promise that you can't be drafted again. I think some thanks should also go to our Again, Mother Margaret Absolutely. April. Because all of those things aren't possible without Margaret. <laughs> I would have acknowledged Margaret's help, but you see, if I acknowledge Margaret's help, it usually calls for a raise in salary. <laughs> for many years, as the founding round table, we have participated in many national events and taken a position of leadership, as Dan so well stated. But we decided at an executive meeting in the first few weeks of Charlie's tenure as president that this annual meeting would become a little more gala, more formal, and more meaningful occasion. And that at this annual meeting, we would always invite a very distinguished American who had made an outstanding contribution to the history and study of the field and the era of American history we love so well. This year, it was our good fortune to select and find available George B. Hartzog, Jr. 
George is an old friend of mine. He and I have struggled in many campaigns. He was, until very recently, the director of the National Park Service. I needn't tell you how much this Civil War Roundtable is indebted to the National Park Service, to its dedicated employees, who have always been so willing and so eager to help, not just in the line of duty, but well over and beyond it. Well, if you, any of you know the operation of any organization, this type of cooperation, this type of spirit, only happens because it reflects the cooperation and willingness and direction and inspiration of the man at the head of such an organization. George Hartzog is a South Carolinian who married a girl from Cambridge, Massachusetts. So, you know, he comes, the, the Hartzogs come here completely neutral, covering all bases. <laughs> he was appointed director of the National Park Service by President Lyndon Johnson in 1964. On January 6th, which, by the way, George, was Carl Sandburg's 86th birthday. <laughs> he was one of the earliest appointees of Lyndon Johnson. I only know of two others. One was the Commissioner of Internal Revenue, who came in November, and the other was a man he selected a special consultant for his archives and library plans, and his name is available only to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> One of the last times uh, Pat and I saw the Hartzogs was at a delightful fall afternoon at the LBJ Ranch when we all gathered together with Lyndon Johnson and Lady Bird and had an absolute delightful afternoon and evening of fellowship and discussed the plans then for the transfer of the ranch to the National Park Service, which transfer had been made, had been made before the president's death. Not long ago, in these various upheavals in government, and in light of what's happened recently, George had the good fortune to be fired as a chairman and director of the National Park Service. But you'll understand why a man who had served for 25 years on the National Park Service would be re-replaced. They found someone who was eminently well, more qualified. This is the man who had run the president's campaign trips. <laughs> George has been involved in such things as the restoration of Ford's Theater, in which I was able to play a small part in many cultural activities. The National Park Service takes in such a fantastically large field of endeavor, from Ford's Theater and Wolf Trap the LBJ Ranch, the battlefields, the national parks, everything really that's part of our national life. We thought there'd be no one more appropriate to start this series of distinguished Americans who would be the recipient of our annual award. George, it's our pleasure to present you with this Distinguished Service Award, which is conferred upon you for devotion to the preservation of the mem memory of the gallant men of principle and their noble deeds in the War of 1861-1865, and for dedication to perpetuating the traditions of our com common country. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. George Hardsog, whose subject is An Endangered Species, Our Nash Civil War National Parks.
President, past President, distinguished guests, and ladies and gentlemen. I'm deeply touched and pleased and proud by this great honor that you have conferred on me. I'm especially pleased and honored that it should be presented by one of the most talented men in America, Ralph Newman, whom my bride and I are happy to claim as friends together with his lovely bride. For all of your warm hospitality and your fellowship and your friendship, we are most grateful indeed. Ralph's gracious introduction puts me in mind of Mendel Rivers' attempt to make his maiden speech on the floor of the Congress. And he arose to get the floor and there was a gentleman talking and he asked if the gentleman would yield and he said in just a moment and Mendel sat down again and a few minutes later he got up the second time and he said with the gentleman yield and he said in just a moment and Mendel sat down the second time and this occurred the third time and the gentleman said in just a moment and at which point he launched into a great complimentary statement about Mendel Rivers, his high potential in the Congress, his great contributions in the South Carolina legislature, and his resemblance to his hero in life, of course, John C. Calhoun. Following which, with a flourish, he said, and I now yield to the gentleman from South Carolina. Whereupon Mendel Rivers jumped up and said, oh my God, man, don't stop talking now. <laughs> <laughs> Ralph referred to my being fired, and I was, and uh, in retrospect, it has turned out to be great. But an interesting thing happened. I was fired on the sixth day of December, and back in October, the Chatterbox Club in Washington had selected me as the man of the year in Washington and their annual luncheon to make this presentation was on December the 14th. So this was a good eight days before the luncheon. And I called up the president of the Chatterbox Club and I said, my friend, you know, I've just been fired and the last thing I want to do is embarrass my friends in Washington. So if you would like to select another candidate, why well, I want you to feel free to go ahead and do it. Nobody knows about this except you and your committee and my wife and I, and I will certainly understand. Whereupon he immediately responded, oh no, not for anything. He said, this is the first year in history the Chatterbox Club has ever honored an unemployed. <laughs> you extended me this invitation while I was still employed by the National Park Service, and I want you to know that I'm doubly honored that you would continue it after I was unemployed, even though fortunately I'm now gainfully employed with a law firm in Washington, and I learned sitting beside your past president that he too is a lawyer, and to his chagrin and no embarrassment to me since it's been so long since I practiced law, I'll share with you my favorite definition of a lawyer. 
This is a man who helps you become confused in an orderly manner. <laughs> and that is a career I am now pursuing in Washington, which with all the things going on there is not a very difficult assignment. <laughs> but I do want to express to you and through you to all the Civil War roundtables throughout this great country of ours, my appreciation of the marvelous help that you have extended to the National Park Service during the years it was my privilege and honor to serve the National Park Service and your national park system. I can think of no more constructive group in the programs and the implementations of the policies of the National Park Service than you have been. And for all that you have done and for what we look forward to your doing in the future, I express my appreciation. We had a director one time, Newton Drury, who many of you probably know, one of the co-founders with Dr. Ralph Cheney of the Save the Redwood League in California, who had a marvelous definition of appreciation. And that was a heartfelt thanks for favors past and a lively anticipation of those yet to come. <laughs> and this is the subject that I would like to share with you tonight because surely if we are going to do something about our Civil War battlefields, we're going to need the help of individuals and organizations such as you. It has become almost a cliche to say that the Civil War was the greatest ordeal of testing in our nation's experience, but cliches often convey truth, and this assuredly is one of them. Abraham Lincoln perceived the truth when he declared at Gettysburg that the war would test whether this nation or any nation would long endure. Accordingly, we look back upon that war today not only as an epic of high drama and adventure, endlessly fascinating as a study in man's courage, heroism, persistence, and brutality, but also as a milestone in our national development of the most profound and lasting consequence. Today, the battlefields and forts and other historic places that recall that great ordeal of the Union are among our most prized national treasures. They help us to understand the people and the events of those testing times. They help us to recapture the flavor and the excitement of that crucial era in our national maturing. But above all, they serve as powerful symbols of our national unity, proclaiming to all who would pause to reflect the enduring strength of the institutions that we possess and which we share in common that could withstand such a shattering challenge. The veterans of the war, both Union and Confederate, sense the value of these places and join to promote their preservation. The Congress perceive their value too in setting them aside, not only for that day, but for all days in our nation's history. In one of its most stirring statements, the Supreme Court confirmed the value of these historic places as well as historic preservation in ruling on an issue involving private land acquisition for Gettysburg when the court declared, and I quote, such action on the part of Congress touches the heart and comes home to the imagination of every citizen. 
and greatly tends to enhance his love and respect for those institutions for which these heroic sacrifices were made. The greater the love of the citizen for the institutions of his country, the greater is the dependence properly to be placed upon him for their defense in time of necessity. And it is to such men that the country must look for its safety." End quote. From such motives sprang our system of Civil War parks. Chickamauga and Chattanooga was the first in 1890, with Antietam, Shiloh, Gettysburg, and Vicksburg following before the turn of the century. By 1930, there were 13 military parks associated with the Civil War, and today we count 16 battlefield parks and 20 other places directly or indirectly commemorating aspects of the Civil War. Among the Civil War areas that are not battlefields are places such as Fort Sumter and Fort Pulaski in Fort Massachusetts, and Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., and Lincoln's Home in Springfield, Illinois. For those of you who have not yet seen Ford's Theater, I urge you to visit it on your next trip to Washington, because truly I think it is one of the most stimulating restorations in the history of our country. And there has been much said and much written about who was responsible for Ford's Theater. And tonight in his hometown and among his friends, I would like to acknowledge the part that Ralph Newman has played in making that a living memorial in the annals of American history. And I would also like to acknowledge that the money for that Ford's Theater came as a result of only one man, and that was Senator Milton Young of North Dakota. Lots of people claim they got money, but for those of you familiar with the governmental process, you know that money comes from the Congress. And in every appropriation bill except the very last one for Ford's Theater, the money for Ford's Theater was added to the appropriation for the Interior Department by Senator Milton Young, who was a ranking Republican on the Senate Appropriations Committee. And it was the leadership and the genius of Ralph Newman that formulated that program of living history, which has made the Ford's Theater such a dynamic part of the interpretive program of the National Park Service, not only in Washington, D.C., but to millions of people who come there from all across this land of ours. And for that, Ralph, I want to thank you here in the presence of your friends and in this your hometown. These great historic places that commemorate not only the Civil War, but the annals of our whole history are not only national possessions of the highest value, they are also fragile and irreplaceable resources. The national interest would seem to decree that we treasure and protect them for posterity so that future generations may gain from them the same dedication and inspiration that we have enjoyed in our time. Yet sad to say the very survival of some of our more significant battlefields hangs in the balance tonight. The dangers spring from both within and outside of these areas. Within the area, the problem is in part the same as that for all of the national park system. Mounting visitation, too many private automobiles, inadequate funding, and inadequate staffing. 
From without, the danger is far more ominous. Our forefathers established these parks in pastoral landscapes. Understandably, they failed to foresee the rampant urbanization and land development that would transform the face of America in this 20th century. They sketched boundaries wholly inadequate to encompass all the historical features, much less buffer these features against encroaching development. The combination of inadequate boundaries and inadequate or non-existing zoning and other land use controls is proving fatal in part after part. Stones River in Tennessee has already been seriously impaired. That park contains 331 acres, possibly 1 25th of the entire battlefield, plus a 20-acre national cemetery. When the park was established in 1927, the surrounding countryside looked much as it did when the Federal Army of the Cumberland clashed with Bragg's Army of Tennessee on December 30, 1862. Now, Interstate 24 slashes across the battlefield and the city of Murfreesboro is devouring much of the lands at the highway left. There may not be enough of the battlefield left after this devastation to permit a meaningful interpretation of the battle. Stones River is beginning to become more and more a commemorative facility only. Another park in jeopardy is a wilderness. This park does not contain some of its most critical terrain. Excluded, for instance, are the fields in which the federal forces maneuvered against Lee's position and the scene of the battle between Longstreet and Hancock on May 6, 1864. Between the old Orange Turnpike and the Orange Plank Road, streams have been dammed to create recreational lakes, and portions of the field associated with Warren and Longstreet, Burnside and Hancock have already been subdivided. North of the turnpike, some of the terrain associated with Sedgwick is also privately owned and threatened with development. When that happens, one may well question as to whether there is enough of the wilderness left to warrant its continued inclusion in the national park system as a national park. Fredericksburg largely has gone the way of the wilderness. The National Park Service has Marie's Heights, the Confederate defensive position, but not much else. The rest has been engulfed by urbanization. The Richmond and Petersburg battlefields are meeting the same fate, and Chancellorsville is at the threshold of danger. Antietam is a classic example of planning based on expediency and lack of foresight. Fee ownership was deemed necessary only for the avenues and the monument sites. Farmland, the planners thought, would remain in its traditional use, and historic structures would survive without special protection. Present federal holdings are about 780 acres, grossly inadequate for the protection of this great battlefield. Legislation was introduced in the last Congress to add 3,400 acres to that 780 acres, but it was not enacted. Chickamauga Battlefield is a reasonably complete unit. I have a Chattanooga, Mr. President, where you spent part of your honeymoon, 
is an entirely different situation. Land acquisition activities there have focused on Lookout Mountain and scattered small tracts on Missionary Ridge. The scene of Thomas's attack on Breckenridge on Military Ridge is lost altogether, while the scene of Sherman's attack on Hardy at the north end of the ridge is only partly intact. Lookout Mountain is a confused and uncertain pattern of land ownership. The crown jewel of the collection, of course, is Gettysburg, and many of you were there last month and have seen the threats for yourself. Noisy intrusions by helicopters destroy the quality of the visitor's experience, and construction of that monstrous tower has now reached a 200-foot level. Beyond the hideous tower, the park is threatened by development of every kind, ranging from mildly inappropriate to outrageous. A vocational school is going up near where General Barlow fell, a fantasy land, and something called Fort Defiance violate hallowed ground east of the Tannytown Road, just behind the Union Center. The park is replete with inholdings, susceptible to these and other types of development, and significant tracks outside of the authorized boundaries also give promise to unsightly development. Now, the rhetoric of preservation is superb, but I suggest for your consideration that talk is long since past due. Action is the only thing that can save these battlefields and many of our other national parks. The 1974 budget of the administration does not contain one single solitary dime for federal land acquisition money for any federal agency in the government, including the national park system so that all of these lands now threatened by development in our Civil War battlefields are simply not to be bought. Now, the explanation of the administration is that there's enough money being carried over from the 1973 fiscal year that they don't need the appropriation in the 1974 fiscal year. One thing that we have enough of in Washington to satisfy everybody is monetary double talk. The only reason that money is available in 74 is because they will not let the National Park Service spend it in 1973. And you know from what's happening around your great city, what's happening to many of these Civil War battlefields, and particularly in the eastern metropolitan environment, is that land prices are accelerating at an astonishing rate, so that every year we wait to acquire these properties, their cost is going to increase, and we run the risk of adverse development. The number one thing that needs to be done is that you gentlemen in the Civil War Roundtable, not only here in Chicago, but throughout this country, need to have your voices heard, not only by this administration, but by the people in Congress who are on your appropriations committee to provide the money to let's clean up these inholdings. The second thing that's needed is for the Department of the Interior to analyze the boundaries of each of these Civil War National Parks, a project that was initiated several years ago and was in progress when I left, so that a clearly defined 
modern updated boundary line can be established for each of these areas so that we can move to acquire this vital land which is now outside of inadequately drawn boundaries. The third thing that we need to do is to look at new land control tools for the federal government. We have tried local zoning. The Congress has relied on local zoning in connection with Civil War battlefields at least since 1950, and it simply does not work. If local zoning had worked, that monstrous tower would not be going up in Gettysburg when the pressure is on the local community to raise more and more taxes for schools and for other things, zoning goes down the drain. And if you doubt it, go back and look at Gettysburg again. Go down and look at Fredericksburg. Go down and look at all of the other places where these Civil War battlefields are located. And you can see how local zoning is, I'm not saying maliciously or fraudulently, but because of the demands on local government to increase revenues are changed to respond to the economic needs of the community. I'm suggesting for your consideration that the preservation of the nation's heritage is much too important to be left to local zoning. The federal government can't zone, but the federal government can acquire easements, and moreover and more significantly, the federal government can adopt compensable federal land use regulations, which will permit it to control the use that takes place on these historically significant lands. Now, I had a great speech all prepared for tonight, but uh, I reviewed the whole thing with my bride before we left Washington. You know, we got married while I was stationed here in Chicago with the National Park Service. We spent uh, the first four months of our married life together. And I owe much of the success that I have to her. And after listening to my whole talk, her advice to me was, dear, when you get about half through, quit. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> President has just handed, former president has handed me a letter that was sent to Bert Rovins. It says, thank you for sending me a copy of your letter to Governor Schaap about the construction of the Gettysburg Tower. The governor has worked hard and long on this. I understand the proposed amusement park at Bull Run has been voted down, at least for the time being. It does seem incredible that two such historic and hallowed spots should be exposed to the exploiters. And I will certainly give very sympathetic consideration or views if the matter comes to the Congress. With best wishes, Adlai Stevens. George, this roundtable decided not too long ago that while it's very nice to give people plaques and various things you can hang on your wall, there comes a time, and I know you know from your long career, when you run out of wall space, even regret you know, the amount of money the organization spent in preparing something. And this isn't true in the case of Ambler Johnson because this is a sentimental gesture is very necessary. But we wanted to find something to give you, George, as a memory of this visit. We are honored by your speech. Your remarks were so perfectly appropriate. They emphasize the reason why we should have an annual award and it should go to a distinguished 
citizen and distinguished student of our field, and your remarks adequately prove our committee's proper judgment. To you, we'd like to present a manuscript. To find a manuscript would be perfectly appropriate to you in view of your career was not easy. But after much hunting, we found something. Together with the manuscript comes a little explanation. The members of the Civil War Roundtable Chicago, as a token of their respect and appreciation for the dedicated services rendered to the people of the United States by George B. Hartsog, Jr., while serving as the director of the National Park Service, present him with this historical manuscript. This is a letter written by an American pathfinder of another century whose explorations and discoveries helped develop and expand our country and define our national heritage. We are happy to present you a letter written by John Charles Fremont, who was known as the Pathfinder. And for those of you not completely familiar with General Fremont's career, let me review a few things. He was a lieutenant in the United States Army and a member of Nicollet's expedition to explore the region of the Upper Mississippi and Missouri Rivers in 1838 and 1839. Under congressional authority, he led three expeditions into the Oregon Territory in 1842, 1843, and 4, and 1845. He played a prominent part in the conquering of California during the war with Mexico in 1846 and 1847. He led a midwinter expedition to locate passes for railroad line from up the upper Rio Grande to California in 48 and 49. He was elected the first United States Senator from California in 1850 and served till 1851. He led a winter expedition to locate a southern railway route to the Pacific in 53 and 54. He was the first candidate of the Republican Party in 1856. He was appointed a major general commanding the Department of the West with headquarters at St. Louis in 61 and appointed to command the Mountain Department in Western Virginia in 62. He resigned from the Army in 64 after he was placed under the command of Major General John Pope. He was appointed governor of the Federal Territory of Arizona, serving from 78 to 83. He was restored to the rank of, in the Army as a major general, re retired pay in 1890, the same year he died. With our affection and appreciation, George, here is a letter written by John C. Fremont to E.F. Beadle, Esquire, written on February 13, 1857, in which he refers to one of his expeditions and I thought it would be the most appropriate thing for you to have, and our members pass it to you with our deep affection and love. Now I would like to add, George Hartsog has, has spoken on a subject that is very vital to us. We can talk about Civil War campaigns and our favorite Civil War subjects and heroes, for meeting after meeting, and we will. But if we want to make our study of this subject more meaningful and make a contribution to our national heritage and continue our battlefield trips and make it possible for our sons and grandsons and granddaughters and grandsons to granddaughters to visit these battlefields, we as a round table have to do something. I would like to suggest, with George's permission, if he would permit us to print 
an edited version of that of his remarks. I'm sure he'd like to polish them up. As a special publication to which we would add a most eloquent plea on the part of this roundtable that we can distribute to the other members of the roundtables throughout the country, to the members of Congress, to everyone of a position of influence, I think this is the most proper action and the best expenditure this organization can make. Thank you. I think anyone who has listened to our deliberations on where our next battlefield tours are going to take place uh, as recent as last month can see the appropriateness of the remarks that you made, sir. It, it, we, so many places we'd like to go are vetoed by the fact, well, that's a junkyard now, or this is a highway, and we had that experience, if you recall, Ralph, in Atlanta, poor Ned Julian standing out in the middle of a spaghetti ball of expressways trying to tell us what happened there 102 years before. It was just ridiculous. So I... I think that uh, I think it's most appropriate. I think it's something that we'll certainly have our our secretary take up and and do in the future, in the near future, I might add. Uh, at this time, I I think that uh, it would be appropriate to adjourn the meeting. I'm sure that if any of you would like to uh, stay about, perhaps uh, Mr. Hartzog would be available. I don't think we'll have a formal question and answer period on this occasion, but in any event, for the last time, it's my pleasure to adjourn the meeting. Thank you very much. <laughs>